You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Amy Green, a teacher and author. In this episode, we explore the well-being of teachers and educators. Amy offers insights into her many years as a classroom teacher before her postgraduate studies in human behavior, coaching, positive psychology, and well-being. We also chat about Amy's new book, Teacher Wellbeing. We look beneath the surface of teaching, including the job demands, habits, systems, structures, processes, and school culture. We chat about tiredness, occupational stress, emotions such as shame, expectations teachers often place on themselves, and burnout. Amy reflects on her writing and development process, drawing on her own experiences and stories, as well as additional psychology, science, and research. Amy outlines the potential trap of surface-level self-care activities and the pursuit of happiness, which, as positive as they are, might involve a relatively superficial approach, simply ticking items off a list. This is in contrast to the more considered and long-term approach of psychological well-being an approach that seeks to identify and tackle the root cause of the issues, such as workload, workplace systems, or workplace relationships. Amy explains how she works closely with teachers to find out what might be causing stress and overwhelm. For example, systems that aren't working, or systems that don't exist and need to. We explore individual and collective responsibilities for teacher well-being and the significance of self-efficacy, that is, the belief that an individual can have an impact and can make a difference. We find out how this then relates to collective efficacy and the value of positive and supportive school-wide culture. Amy clarifies her aim of creating happier and healthier school environments that teachers want to be a part of in the long term. Here's my conversation with Amy Green. So hello Amy, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So I wanted to find out a little bit more about you. I read a bit in the back of your new book, um, biographical information, but mm-hmm. I thought that I, I didn't read all of it. But um, how did how did we get to this point in time? You know, I know that you're a um, a teacher that's worked across different sectors, mm-hmm. um, and you're an author. But I mean, and? how did how did all that come about? Such a great question. Um, because it's not probably a typical story. What what I often get asked is oh, you must have a really great burnout story to now do work in the teacher wellbeing space. And yes, I have experienced that, but it's definitely not the catalyst to to have put me here at all. And I mean, I was a teacher and a school leader for a significant number of years, I think in my time, more half my life really. So um, 18 years, uh, 17, 18 years. Um, and I loved it. I loved every minute of teaching and leading in schools and working with people. I just found it so rewarding and fulfilling. 
even as an early teacher, like, yes, it was challenging and difficult, but I, it just brought me so much joy and still, do, and still does. I still do the odd relief day because I like it, because I like being in schools and around children, and, and I think you, it keeps me real. Were, were you teaching in a primary school, I'm figuring? I taught in a primary school, but I've also taught in schools uh, that are 5 to 12 or P to 10. Um, so I, I've had a mix of everything, really. And yeah. did you and did you want to be a teacher from like for a long time before you decided to, to that was what you wanted to do? Um, I actually didn't start teaching at university. I started doing design for theatre and television because I wasn't the straight A student in my last few years of high school. I definitely had a bit of a more relaxed approach in my final few years. And I grew up in rural New South Wales and w- was able to... I think forget what they called, like kind of like pre-entry submission for an arts placement and I'd had a portfolio of work that I've done and I got early entry and that was it. And I did that for I think nearly two semesters and I just didn't feel like it was going to be enough for me. I was like, I'm not really sure this is the work I want to do. And I went into the education office and spoke about swapping over and it was quite an easy process and that's what I did. And then when you started teaching like how did that go with like after you graduated yeah you really enjoyed it I loved it I spent a lot of time too whilst I was at university working as a learning sport teaching assistant so I had some experience of being in a classroom and uh and obviously my prac placements when I went through university they were quite lengthy our final placement in our fourth year was a, a whole term being in a school and having that class pretty much on your own for eight weeks which is very different to what I think some teachers do now. But I went and taught a 5-6 class in my first year out. It wasn't my preference. I wanted the little people, but I, I got 5-6. And it was like it was full on, but it was great. And, I, you know, I remember in those first few years working really hard, but from a sense of it, it gave me such purpose and meaning and I wanted to do that. I never resented it. I never felt like I'd chosen the wrong career or anything like that. And you know, I I often say now to new educators, through university, you have Friday nights. When you become a teacher in your first few years, you'll be sleeping through those. So, like, don't make big plans because I think for for my first few years, it was just, it's a lot. And your weekends become about resting and that becomes really important. And when you're at university and kind of transitioning into that full-time career, it's just such an unknown world and life becomes so different when you're having to be on from, you know, as a teacher sometimes from seven till five or eight till four or whatever your work day involves. And it's intense and it's tiring. And so your weekends become about resting and nurturing. Yeah, I do remember when I was at at university or teacher's college myself with um, the first practical that we did we did started in first year and mm-hmm. then I was just exhausted the first few days just and it was like a switch had been turned on or off maybe but um just that kind of connection between having to pay attention and yeah. be there perform all day and then I remember just going home and just collapsing and thinking totally. wow this is really quite interesting um mm-hmm. and then that was that was only in practice teaching yeah, my um, sister, she's only two years younger than I am and she's just become a teaching assistant in a school and she has two little boys, they're five and seven, but she's just started um, doing this really important work and is considering even doing a teaching degree. But um, she, says, she said to me recently, oh, I get it. 
Like it is so tiring. You're on all the time. She went on her first excursion yesterday and she's like, you just can't stop. You can't take your eyes off them. I was like, yeah, that's what it's like. That's why we're tired. So it is, it is very much like being on and performing and having to make decisions all of the time and having to think about what's happening or preempt something or respond. And there's no popping out to get a coffee or, you know, having a relaxed afternoon with a work colleague and chatting about something or sometimes even going to the toilet when you need to. You are on all the time. So when you travelled through your 18 years of teaching kind of career, what how what happened next for you in terms of your, you know, what, you, what were you doing? Well, I went into teaching with the ambition and, and I guess the mindset of thinking I'll end up being a school leader and a principal and that's the career path. And I spent mm, maybe kind of three, I guess in three, four years thinking that's what I was going to do. And when I started having those career progression conversations, I realized that's not quite where I want to be heading right now. You know, it was, you could be a principal by the time you're 30 or 35. And I was like, I, that's not for me. And so I packed up and moved to London and went and lived over there for three years and taught and did the traveling thing. I actually taught at the same school for the entire time. So I still was committed and invested to education and I took on leadership roles there. But, you know, I got to travel and go to France on the weekend and Spain and do things like that, that you can't do from Australia. And then when I came back, I actually noticed a really big difference between the Australian and the UK system in terms of, I guess, accountability and performance. And, you know, they had Ofsted over there. And so it was very different. And in some ways I'd adapted that that pace of London lifestyle and just that high level of accountability that came from the way the system was organised in the UK. And I'd actually over there developed some great habits, some great systems, some great structures to be able to manage teaching. And so when I came back to the classroom here, I think in that was about 2014, things were kind of easy. I was like, oh yeah, actually I'm not as tired anymore. I've got these good systems that I've implemented. I'm able to do these things. And people started asking me for help or saying like, how do you do that? How do you get through the day and still have energy to do other things? And like, in some ways, I guess I made it look easy. Uh, and that was a, an insight into, oh, well, hang on, maybe there are some things here I need to share with people. And so I started just mentoring teachers in my own school. And after that, I started a blog, just sharing some things that were really about helping teacher well-being so they could have a life both in and out of the classroom. It's kind of what I say, you know, we've got to be able to have a life in both places. And from there, it was suggested I should study some human behavior and coaching. I went and did that. I became fascinated with people and performance and how we learn and mindset and things like emotions and resilience and the meaning we attach to things and the stories we tell ourselves and how community and connection can influence our state. And that just really opened up a whole different way of seeing how we operate in schools. And following that, I went and studied and did a diploma in positive psychology and well-being. And during that time, this was a, a number of years, I started doing more and more support work for teachers, started an online business, did a few bits and pieces. And then eventually that led to getting a book deal uh, that has just been published. And now I'm doing full-time consultancy work and supporting teachers and schools to really look at what's happening either in their classroom or in their own life or in their school as a whole around how we support teacher well-being and staff well-being. 
So when when you did the human behavior coaching and the positive psychology and well-being, did you know necessarily, well, like, did you have it mapped out where you were headed or you just kind of took on that because you enjoyed it or something, like I, I'm assuming? Both. I, I In 2014, I started saying, this is the work I want to do. I want to work as like a teacher mentor. I think that's probably what I called it. And I want to be mentoring teachers and working with them on their well-being so that like the stat, the statistic of 50% of teachers living in the first five years is not new. It's been around for a long time. And so I knew then that we need to start doing something. And I was told that that would never happen. I shouldn't pursue it. It's a waste of time. I should just stick to what I'm good at. I should set my sights on being principal. You know, no school will invest in it. It's not going to become a priority. I'm going, you know, to put myself under pressure. I don't need to just stay in the school, do that, do that work. Uh, and I really had to, like, it was, it actually was really challenging because people were telling me to not pursue this. And I, I really genuinely believed that this area was going to be a priority and we needed to start doing something about it way back in 2014, 2015, but it wasn't getting the attention or the traction that it needed. And, I mean, fast forward, here we are, and it it was needed. I mean, it's definitely needed now, but we needed it six or seven years ago so that we didn't end up in this space. So did you have like, just from your own observations, a kind of, where did this inkling come from or, you know, like internal drive or I don't know what you call it? Yeah, I guess a few things. So having other teachers and educators ask me how I made it look easy was one. Uh, so having people say, well, how do you plan like that? How do you think like that? How do you operate your classroom like that? And that was a bit of a, I guess, a prompt to reflect on, the way I operated and I hadn't really considered that before. And I learned about this when I did my human behavior and coaching to, you know, different personality styles or different ways we operate in terms of our strengths and what comes naturally. And so that was the first kind of, uh, I guess, push to thinking, oh, hang on, maybe there is something here. And then the second was definitely just this intrinsic motivation to want to make a difference and knowing that, Yes, I could do it in a school, but that would only impact the the teachers and the staff that were in that school with me. And I could see that this was a much bigger and wider problem than one school and that wasn't going to get the impact in the education system as a whole that we really need. And if we look around now, that's what schools and leaders and teachers are, are screaming out for. So we're going to chat about your book in a, in a minute, in a few minutes, but I'm wondering how did that how did the the book idea come about? Well, I've been writing and speaking about teacher wellbeing for a number of years and I had always wanted to write a book, but in some way it was like this big dream and I thought it would never happen. Um, and how would I do it and what was even the first step? But I got offered a book deal uh, November 2021, so 12 months ago actually, um, and, or maybe October, but when that offer came through, I instantly said yes. I knew that it was something I wanted to do and I had no idea what I was going to write about at the time. I didn't even know I had a book in me and I did nothing. I didn't even contact the publisher until January of this year. And then we talked about a timeline and what it might look like. And so I planned out this book. I actually started writing a different book. I started writing something along the lines of 10 mindset mindset shifts to help teachers with their well-being, like a bit of a self-help book. And that was what I was writing. And so I think I wrote, I don't know, maybe six, 8,000 words for that. And 
over the April school holidays this year, I was like, I'm going to finish it. That's what I'm doing. And I just started reading it again. And I was like, I don't like this. This isn't the book I want to write. This isn't the message I want to tell. There's so much more to working on well-being and what's happening right now rather than just 10 things we've got to change. I actually don't think that that is uh, delivering this with compassion or empathy for what's happening. And so I threw it out and started again. And in that moment, I realized, you know, I know what it's like to be burnt out and stressed because I've experienced that. I've lived through that. And I actually hadn't told or shared that story ever, really. So a couple of years ago when I was teaching and when I was leading in a school, I was diagnosed with occupational stress and burnout and it had built up over time. And that when we know that's what burnout is, it's long-term stress. And at the time I had no idea that's what was wrong with me or that's what I was experiencing. And I was just tired. I was tired all of the time and I didn't feel myself. I didn't have the energy. I wasn't as happy my digestive system was like not working well. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't able to think as clearly. My skin was breaking out. I even started losing my hair. Like my hair started breaking. Uh, and I like, was like, a, there's a lot of things happening. And I, I was like, I just don't know what's going on because I'm doing all of the right things. Like I was meditating and doing yoga and I was exercising and I was eating healthy and I had this career and I had this other thing I was trying to do like in this space. And, you know, I was an auntie and a partner and a sister and I had a lot happening and I thought I was doing all the right things. And I ended up being connected with an integrative GP whom I visited. And I remember, I remember the first day I went and saw her and she said, what's wrong? Why are you here? And I just said to her, oh, no, nothing's wrong. I'm just tired. I'm tired all the time. And I just remember her saying, right, and what else? And I was, for a, while, a few minutes, I was like, there's nothing else. There's nothing else. She said, so you've got no other symptoms. You're just tired. And eventually I started listing those things that I just listed to you. But I didn't know that they were all connected and they were part of it. And I didn't know that they were all signs of stress. And so in that moment with her, what I realized was that for a, a period of time, not just one school or one event or anything like that, and and certainly not because of only work, uh, I had somehow created an environment that I was living in that was unhealthy for my body. And, and I was contributing to that by having this strict exercise regime and things that I did and by only sleeping for seven and a half hours so I could get up at 5 a.m. and you know, do all of these things that I thought were successful and what successful people did. And then, of course, add that with a stressful work environment. And I had chronic stress and burnout. And so when I was writing my book, I actually allowed myself to sit with that because I, as I mentioned, hadn't spoken about it or talked about it because I was really ashamed. Like I didn't think someone like me who was a school leader, who people saw as someone who had it together or, you know, was successful or had ambition or drive or was doing the right things, even did some work in the wellbeing space, could actually fall apart. But I had. I had somehow that had happened and I'd lost sight of my values and what was important to me and I got distracted by what I thought I should be doing instead of what made me happy. And that was the first moment to realising actually this is a really big piece of work that needs to be done. Thank you.
You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So when it came to putting your book together, we heard a little bit about um, how you started and, and threw it out, which is yeah. interesting. Did you have to do a lot of research, additional research, or like what? And you, I mean, did you rely upon your own personal experiences or those of your colleagues, or possibly a combination? Of, like, how did you how did you start putting the book together now that you'd shifted gears with it? Mm, yeah, definitely both. I suppose once I realised actually it was a bigger story to tell than just things we need to do, I had to look at what is it that we need, that we want, that would ha- that would help us, but that will, that will also help the collective. And because I'd done a lot of study, I, I started just mapping out what do I want to include in the book? What do I think, what do I think would have helped me at that point in time or prior? So I, I kind of come from a space of prevention rather than treating. I said, what do we need to prevent this from happening to anyone else or prevent any more impact? And I started piecing ideas together and then some things I just had remembered but couldn't for the life of me remember where I'd learnt it or read it. So I did spend a bit of time going back to find the reference or find the research or to even in some ways validate my own thinking. I was really mindful of not making big statements around things I thought we need to do just because I think we should, but I actually wanted to make sure that there was a balance of that research and science behind it as well because we know that that is is important and needed and and some people are more research minded and some people are quite happy with the story and I think having a balance and a blend of both suits every reader and so I've tried to to keep that in mind as I was putting it together and then really it was thinking about what key messages do I want to share well first of all I think we don't quite understand what well-being is we're all talking about it we're all saying it needs to improve we're all saying let's enhance it, get better at it, make it a priority. But what is it? There's so many mixed messages out there. So I wanted to address that. And then I really wanted something to be just for teachers because I am a believer that if you can't look after yourself or you don't know how or you haven't done the work for you first, then doing it as a team or collective or for your students is even more challenging. And so I wanted to provide that. And then also whilst well-being is an individual responsibility, there's very much a collective responsibility that schools can take awareness of and take hold of to drive change. And that is where my framework kind of came from that I use now for teacher and staff well-being, the two components around everyday and workplace well-being, and that, yes, we have an individual component to build self-efficacy, but we also have a collective component which requires collective efficacy as we move into workplace well-being and and how that looks. So that was the process that I went through to get once I had that framework then it all kind of flowed from there and then I also wanted to be leaving people with some actionable things they could take away to do which is you know the end of every chapter there's there's a little piece of homework there I guess so that yes it has research yes it has story yes it has science and it has practicality as well because we, we can read about well-being and we can see headlines about teacher burnout or teachers leaving the profession, but we also have to start asking and stepping into a space of, well, what can we do? What action can we take? What choices do we have? And so I really wanted that to come through in the book as well. Yeah, that was the bit that um, I haven't quite finished reading the book, but um, 
the the parts that I have read, I liked that there's a section called from theory to action. And it's Mm -hmm. basically these little homework exercises you speak of, like I enjoy working at my school or engagement, and you give it a score of one to 10. So, and then productivity. Um, So I I won't show, well, I'll show you my results, but don't read them out or anything. Oh, yes, I can see. (laughs) So so I have engaged with the process. So I liked that aspect. It was kind of, it felt very grounded and practical because it is I'm I'm quite familiar with that um the diversity I suppose of some teachers are into the research and the theory or the academic literature and those aspects are really important to underpin ideas but Mm -hmm. then I've seen just other teachers they just reject that or if there's too much of that so I guess it's it's important as you say to have that balance Mm -mm. So, and then what happened? Did you do like, I'm assuming you did a series of drafts, are you putting it together or you got your framework, you got your stories, so, you got your, yeah. th- your theory. <laughs> I had all the pieces. I had bits and pieces for a while and then I had um, chapter plans and then I started playing and then I did nothing for a little while. So from about April to June, I did nothing. Then I kind of had the idea and knew where I wanted to go with it. And so... I just sat with it. I just I did little bits of playing, like pen to paper, writing, nothing too serious. And it really wasn't until I would say June that I thought, okay, I've only got like six weeks left. I have to actually <laughs> make something happen here. And it all it all just connected and it all just started to flow. I mean, there was one very stressful weekend where I didn't leave my office for three days and wrote somewhere near 40,000 words in that period of time because I I have to get this done. Uh, but I could see it. I knew what I was going to write. I knew what I wanted to say. I knew the concepts and the research and the theory. It was just piecing it together and actually doing the work, to be honest, like just getting in there and putting words on paper. And so I allowed that to happen and and put it all together and there was a draft and then I shared it to some wonderful people who read the draft in my Google Doc versions with my typos and no graphics and no subheadings or anything like that and got some feedback, made a few changes, and then it went to my lovely editor, Brooke, and we went back and forth a few times and she was fantastic to work with. And then I'd made some really basic graphics, either on the Word document or in Canva and just of what I wanted it to look like and was so grateful to have those brought to life through the graphic designer with the publisher and watch that all kind of form and morph into our book. And then I got the final edit, the PDF and the coloured graphics in there and it had a contents page. I think that's what I was most excited about. Like it's a real book with a contents page <laughs> and <laughs> and looking at all of those things and just thinking, wow, that's it. I mean, there was a point where I was asked to read it you know, for one of the final times and I was like, I can't, I can't read this anymore. I've read it too many times. I'm second guessing everything. I don't like it. I don't want to publish it. I want to rewrite it. Um, and I just had to walk away from it. I just had to be like, it's done. It's great. Leave it. Mm. So that was challenging. <laughs> yeah, well, as I was reading through it, I, I it seemed pretty clear that it, the ideas, like they're, they're solid ideas. I'm assuming they're transferable to other areas of our world. Absolutely. But it felt like it was def- very much revolving around the teacher experience, like that you've lived and breathed it. And it is kind of 
it made me reflect on my own kind of, you know, experiences. And it is kind of, um, well, I mean, if you are a teacher, you know what we're talking about sort of thing. But if you're not, it's kind of like, um, you don't maybe fully appreciate, like we were talking earlier about the the kind of, you've got to be on, you can't, you can't just kind of like if you're at a desk job or something, you can make the decision. Oh, I think I'll go easy today, or you know, cancel all my meetings. But that's a little bit tricky for a teacher. Yeah, you can't. I know. I, I have friends who work in corporate, and they make comments like, "Oh, I was feeling tired, so after lunch, a colleague and I just went out and got coffee and sat in the park." And like, that's not a thing here. Like, we can't do that. Or, oh, I just you know. It's Monday and I don't really want to go into the office, so I'm just going to work from home. Well, that's not an option for us. There's just so many little things, I think, unless you have lived and breathed being a teacher, you have no idea. Hmm. I liked the um, maybe if we could just start looking at a little bit more of the detail, the content, mm. that's the word, but I liked the right up front, you had the distinction between well-being and I guess their definition of well-being, but how it's distinct from, um, what is it again, self-care or yeah. you know, that kind of thing. And I kept laughing about the morning tea, which morning teas are nice and they're important and everything, but just yeah. the fact that they're more of an outward component, whereas the well-being approach is, or can you tell us a bit more, what is going yeah. on there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love morning tea and I will say now working by myself from home, I do miss not having a morning tea. <laughs> I was in a school yesterday and they had put on afternoon tea for the staff meeting and I was delighted. I was like, yes, I will have some. It was great. So those things are important, but they're actually not the answer to well-being. So what I think, and this is what I unpack in the book, what I think has happened is that we've fallen into the trap of thinking those nice things that are predominantly more about self-care are going to actually enhance well-being. So things like morning teas, yoga instructors, encouraging people to just go for a walk. And we need those. We really do. But they're not going to help with workload. They're not going to help necessarily reduce long-term stress. They're not going to address any issues around productivity or write our reports quicker. You know, they're not going to do those things. And so we have to start asking ourselves, well, what actually is it in regards to our own well-being that we need to focus on that will enhance not just how we feel, but also our ability to do our job. So this is about being fit for purpose and workplace well-being and saying, well, if we're looking at teacher well-being, then we're looking at how teachers feel and how teachers approach the work that they have to do. And we want to make it efficient, effective, and we want it to be done with ease. We want them to feel productive and engaged. And if we're only doing things like morning teas or cancelling meetings or playing games in a staff meeting game time, then we're not addressing those issues. We're kind of playing around the surface of that and thinking we're doing well-being, but we've still got teachers who are stressed, who are overloaded, who have to-do lists that never end, or we've got systems in schools that aren't productive and we're doing things because, well, we just always have and so why should we change them? And there's a distinct difference between understanding that self-care, I say, is about what you go and do and it's easy and fun and makes you feel good, and that is linked to our subjective well-being. But then we also have a psychological well-being, which is about fulfillment, connection, purpose, meaning, engagement, growth. And we have to look at those areas just as much, if not more, because they're harder to do in the well-being space for our educators rather than just focusing on our subjective well-being. Mm. 
And then I liked um, that you you spoke a few times about things like systems, structures, processes, and school cultures. I mean, Mm. that's huge. Huge. So, I mean, how do we even begin or how how might teachers I'm I'm being very non-linear with my my questions we're not working through the book in a linear fashion but that's just one of the bits that that's uh, sprung out at me so how do how does one approach that that, that yeah. sort of territory yeah this came about from having had interviewed and and speaking with a lot of teachers around, well, whose responsibility is it? Whose responsibility is teacher and staff wellbeing? And this does pop up quite frequently. And you'll notice that I've mentioned it's an individual and collective responsibility because it is, but at a school level and a workplace level, whether we call, say, schools or workplaces, we have to understand that there. this is about reviewing and looking at systems, structures and processes, which essentially is how we do the work that we do. And that underpins culture and how people connect and operate, which is linked to our psychological well-being. So we're really at a, at a task-based, tangible level. It's what do our report writing systems look like? How do we give people time to meet in their teams? How do we set up the way people connect with each other? Are we doing things that perhaps we don't need to do anymore? Are we doing too many of something, not enough of something? Because it's how we do things that allow us to have thriving and flourishing well-being and it's when we have thriving and flourishing well-being that we can do our work better so those things go hand in hand and so your question was well how do we do it I often get asked you know do you recommend a data survey or some kind of app that teachers can use to track their well-being and there are many out there I don't recommend one in particular for this reason it's because I don't think that that is going to provide us with the data we need to be able to make the change because If a teacher tells you they're feeling three out of five on a stress level or six out of 10 on team connection, that actually doesn't help us know what's causing or impacting those things. So some of the work I do when I go into schools is what I call a beneath the surface day. And I spend time interviewing teachers to go beneath the surface of what's causing stress, what's causing overwhelm, what systems aren't working here, what systems don't exist but need to. Because when we're able to name them, be really granular with them and actually target those things, then we can change them. So if we're not able to name them and all we're saying is I'm tired, I'm stressed, we don't know what to change. So that's that's how we do the work that's long-term and influences culture. We have to start asking questions and being brave enough to hear that Maybe some things in our school we think are effective aren't, and then that'll know, that'll allow us to be able to see what we need to change, shift, let go of, or do more of. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So, uh. This book about well-being, I've noticed that there's the word efficacy that comes up a few times, more than a few times, which is kind of linked to one's belief that something is possible. And so sounds like there's more going on under the hood there that, you know, it was kind of a little bit, um, well, it held my interest. It's what's going on there. So, so my question is, what is going on there? What's mm. all that territory about? Yeah, good, good insight. There, 
efficacy came up because when I was putting together, I guess, the framework and thinking about, well, it's all right to tell people we should do this, but, you know, if they don't believe it, then it's not going to work. And I have been a teacher and I've been in staff rooms and I have heard and possibly even said, oh, that'll never happen. This will never change. There's no way this is going beyond, you know, this meeting today. Why are we even here? What a waste of time. And I was reflecting on that. Uh, in my own experience and from speaking with others. And it occurred to me that if we really want the work of teacher wellbeing to become a priority, we have to believe it. We have to believe that not only should we do the work and that it's valued, but that we can make a difference individually and collectively. So with the wellbeing framework that I created, I talk about everyday wellbeing as being underpinned with our self-efficacy. So it's all well and good to read about and understand that we need to work on our energy and function and resilience and emotional regulation. But unless we have the efficacy, the self-efficacy that we can make a difference and make a change to our own life, it doesn't work. It's not going to, we're not going to get any traction or make any change or, or create a difference. It would be like thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to start this new diet. I mean, we'd all do this in January, don't we? Oh, I'm going to go on this health kick and we're, oh, we've at least done it and I'm going to try this. But in the back of our mind, if we're like, oh, it won't work, I'll give up after two weeks, we give up after two weeks. And so we've got to develop that self-efficacy along with the learning and the understanding and the action. And the same goes for collective efficacy. So as teachers, if you're an educator listening, you probably have come across the term collective teacher efficacy and the collective belief as a group or a team of teachers, we hold that that is about making an impact on student learning. And we actually need to have collective efficacy for the work of wellbeing because when we do this at a school level, everyone needs to believe and be invested. And that's because it's part of culture. And if we have a group of people who are like, this won't work, why are we even bothering? It'll be over and done within 12 months. I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to contribute. I'm not going to join in then we're not going to get change or impact and we're already setting ourselves up to kind of self-sabotage in some way. So we have to be willing to look at how committed am I? Do I actually believe it? And if we don't believe it, question why that is. Is it because you don't want to do the work? Is it because you're quite happy with how things are? Is it because you don't want to face something that perhaps you mightn't like? Like I know when I first started working on my own understanding of well-being and these things a long time ago when I did my human behavior work, I uncovered many things about myself I didn't like that I had to change. Even now there are times where I'm like, oh, that I wasn't very nice when I did that or I'm going to change that behavior because actually it's not kind. Now I had the efficacy and knowledge to know that I could do the work, but along the way I uncovered many things that were confronting and required vulnerability and required an openness. And on some level, if we have a mindset of nothing will work, it won't change, then perhaps it's because we don't want to do the work. And if that's the case, then we have to understand that that impacts everyone. And so we all have to have an agreement that a level of collective efficacy is required to shift the culture around teacher well-being or anything to do with staff well-being because we are essentially holding each other accountable to the work we're committing to do. And so accountability comes into how do we want to be, how do we want to feel, what are our standards of excellence, how do we do the work, and we have to be prepared to have these difficult and challenging conversations to have the self and collective efficacy if we are committed to creating the change we all say we want. Yeah, like it's it's got a feel that it's very um, 
sensible and grounded. It's not like it doesn't sound or come across as fleeting and silly or, you know, in that kind of cupcake territory. You know, it's kind of so apparent and sensible, grounded, actionable. And it, it, like I, I guess it's kind of there's, there's more than a few things going on at the same time, I guess. And I guess it is confronting because people maybe they can't handle the truth or they don't, yeah. I don't know, it's got its own overwhelm possibly. But yeah. I guess it's the the kind of, um, I don't know, I can't think of why where I was headed with that. I don't think there's even a question. It's more just my kind of thoughts. Mm. Um I did, but I did. I did pick up a pen. I mean, some people don't like marking up books, but I've just I do for it. Um, I liked the ideas about emotional awareness and being able to identify and put language around because that's a sensible thing as well. Instead hmm. of just reducing things down to, you know, happy, sad, angry, it's yep. like all the all the other elements of that, so that that's purposeful to communicate with other people about it mm-hmm. or self-reflect or a whole range of different things. Mm-hmm. Now, another thing I really like this, it's quite mysterious, this individual e- efficacy and its relationship to the collective. How does that, well, is there more in that that you can tell us? I think sometimes we we expect their work to be done at a school level or a team level before we do the work ourselves. And I, I think I call it a bit of a hierarchy in the book. You know, we've got to work on our own everyday well-being, our own self-efficacy first before we can step into workplace well-being and collective efficacy. That's at a whole school level before we even look at teams because a disconnect happens if we start somewhere else. So some people will just think, well, our team is the best team and we're going to work on having, you know, the year four team in this primary school or the science team or whatever, you know, we're the best operating team. We have the best well-being. We look after each other. We care about each other. And so they have collective efficacy that their team functions well and they have good well-being, but then there's also judgment for other teams. And then there's also, we'll look at what they do and that's not, we wouldn't do that. And that doesn't happen to us because our team works well. And so we're creating a divide. And that's not collective efficacy at all. That's actually just an insular space of I want to be better than you and that's not helpful to culture. That's why it's so multifaceted and layered and we've actually got to take a step back and go, let's just do what we need to do individually and then all come together as a whole school to create cultural changes and then it filters up into teams because we don't need more us and them. No, not at all. And I guess in terms of a learning outcome, those cultural learning out or you know learning outcomes even intentions um competencies the cultural ones are always tricky because there's there's sort of um i guess there's a degree of mystery about how you kind of tackle that or even mm-hmm. the long-term planning of that or all these other elements so i guess that's where those tools come in or you know the processes things that are sort of measurable or doable so teacher well-being is a really important topic, a really important area, but I mean, possibly for various reasons, people have become maybe a little bit dismissive or they don't, they sort of write it off or, you know, it's not always taken on board. So, which is a crying shame. So Mm. what's, what's going on there or, you know, what could be done or. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a few reasons. First of all, well-being is actually really new. 
in terms of workplace well-being, addressing it, it being a priority, knowing that it's needed and that workplaces and schools play a role in staff well-being, that is still a brand new concept for people, not teachers and educators, but all people in all industries, areas, organisations to understand. And I think because of that, we haven't taken the time to actually build our understanding and capacity of it. And we've latched onto it. I mean, in some ways, let's be honest, it's just a buzzword. Well-being this, well-being that, I've got to look after my well-being, but we don't really know what we're talking about all the time. And so it became a bit of a hype and I think social media plays a part in it. You can, you know, if you were to Google 10 things teachers can do to enhance well-being or a well-being checklist, you can find them instantly online. And it it became in the beginning about just ticking things off a list and getting stuff done and doing those nice things we've already discussed. And because that's what was happening but those things weren't working, they didn't help long-term, we've now become a little bit questionable, questionable of, well, why bother with well-being? It doesn't work anyway. Like it's not what we need. And in some ways that's accurate because we've approached it in a way that hasn't necessarily looked at the root cause of the problem. We've just wanted to, to make people feel good. You know, we've gone down the pursuit of happiness path rather than tackling the bigger issues of workload, uh, relationships, how we work together. And so through that misunderstanding, we've lost sight of what well-being is, or maybe we never had it in the first place. And we've got to remember that leaders of our schools were once teachers. You know, they were the year six teacher or they were the English teacher. And then over time, we progress into this space of leadership, whether you're an assistant principal, a deputy or a principal, and you're expected to do all of these things that come kind of with HR roles or management roles that we haven't had training for or studied for. And when you look at other companies, they have people who have gone to university to sit in those specific roles. And we don't, as most leaders don't have that. We've just kind of, it just happens internally. And that's a great thing because we know what schools are like and we have that lived experience. But it also means we're having to grapple with things like well-being that aren't in our realm of study perhaps. So many school leaders who are trying to figure this out were once teachers and this has been put on top of them. And so everyone is doing the best they can with what they've got. It is not a case of, oh, well, my principal doesn't care about my well-being, and if they did, we wouldn't have as many meetings or if they did, this would change because we're all still trying to figure it out, do what we need to do in line with what the system tells us to do or what unions say we have to do or whoever is making the policy, wherever they come from, government tells us what to do, whilst also trying to keep staff happy. But we have to answer to so many people. And so we're in a bit of a murky space because we took well-being and then put it into this space of self-care and doing nice, nice things that actually hasn't worked. And so now schools are asking, well, what do we do now? Why hasn't this worked? What do we really need? And we're in a transition period. And so if you're someone who is thinking well-being isn't worth it or we've done the wrong thing or it's a waste of time, I'm just it's it's just worth taking into consideration that it's not a waste of time. We haven't done it wrong. We just didn't have all of the information. And what we tried worked short term, but now we know we need something long term. And that is, you know, the journey that every school and every teacher is on. That's why it's a little bit murky and messy. That's why some people might be dismissive of it. But I I have hope and I am confident that we will see a shift to better understanding what improving teacher and staff well-being really looks like. 
So any sort of change would in a any sort of system, a workplace or anything really, is going to require time and effort. So why should leaders, uh, you know, what are they getting out of this? Or why should they bother to in, even investigate further? What's the what's the point or why? why? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question because it, like, it comes up. Why should we invest in this? And, I mean, we know the research and the statistics and things that have been published around teacher burnout and stress and leaving the profession and the shortage is a real thing. It's not coming. Like, I think it's here. And so I could say, yes, that those are the reasons. But really what this is about is creating happier and healthier school environments that teachers want to be a part of longer term. And that means that if you do the work, if you invest in teacher wellbeing, what you're also investing in is aligning and streamlining your systems and your structures and processes around how teachers do our work. Because it's not just about uh, do our teachers feel happy and and those subjective things around ensuring that, you know, we're nice to each other or we we have more morning teas or whatever it might be. It is actually about looking at how we do our work. How do we plan? How do we work together? How do we assess? How do we do all of those things? Well, not just because we need to do them, but because our teachers feel efficient when they do them. It's effective. It's fulfilling. We know what matters. And then also it helps student learning. And that also our students are getting the best of their teachers. That also our students are having teachers in front of them who have the energy to be present. There's so many different reasons and layers as to why this work matters. But if I was to sum it up, I think, you know, I I just come back to the sentence I use often, which is really so we can have happy, healthy educators and teachers both in and out of the classroom. Because we know when that happens, we naturally have people in the workplace who are more productive and engaged, committed, able to work better, more open-minded, look at change as opportunity rather than resist. And we know that when those people go home, they're happier in their homes, they connect better with their family and they just feel good. And that's why this work matters. In this episode, I chatted with Amy Green, a teacher and author. You can find out more about this episode in the show notes, including a link to Amy's book, Teacher Wellbeing. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Perryville.